This is me trying something new. Just like the title to this podcast. Metastating with Michael is now Metastating Live Life on Purpose. This new title captures more of what I'm hoping the group and the podcast and the guests and the insights will offer. Enjoy. The show. So welcome everybody. This is the next episode of Metastating with Michael and we have with us somebody that I hope to really geek out with in the neuroscience field here today, talking about bodies and our brains and our lives. Her name is Lauren Grafe and I was introduced to her by my daughter Cassidy in Texas and that's I that's where Lauren is sitting right now in Texas where it's probably a lot warmer than 54 degrees like it is in Vermont right now. So welcome, Lauren. I'm looking forward to having a a really great conversation. Uh, If you want to just briefly introduce yourself and and we'll get started. Sounds good. Well, thank you for having me here on the show. Um, I am sitting in Texas. It is definitely uh, hotter than 54 degrees. I'd much rather be up in Vermont right now. low 90s so not terrible (laughs) almost october so we're still in the 90s oh my goodness yeah welcome to texas so um, my journey i guess pinpointing where my journey began is a little more difficult i'd say where i really got introduced to neuroscience and developed a passion for neuroscience was i suffered from a variety of mind-body symptoms um, primarily the main one that was chronic and ongoing was chronic back pain. And, um, as someone who suffered from a lot of mind body experiences, um, I was very much immersed in the brain disease model side of things. So diseases, they are heritable and, or connected directly to some kind of injury. So immediately, anytime I'd get a symptom, I would think, okay, what's wrong with me? You know, where, where, where was this injury and, and how can I fix it? So I was, I was trying to figure all of that stuff out and wasn't able to, wasn't able really to find anything that was necessarily wrong or abnormal with my back. Um, I just had this persistent excruciating pain that ultimately, you know, it started more mild and eventually worked up to, you know, being in a wheelchair and not being able to drive a car and being, you know, completely dependent on someone else for all of my, you know, functioning. Um, And so I was just really deep into this intense, unexplainable back pain that really, you know, doctors and, and neurologists and surgeons, neurosurgeons weren't able to pinpoint exactly what was wrong and they weren't able to help. So I went through a lot of different treatments all the way from, you know, trying acupuncture, chiropractic, physical therapy, all the way um, up to eventually having spinal surgery. And Mm. even that spinal surgery didn't, didn't help. Um, I was still in a ton of pain. 
I was extremely depressed. I felt hopeless and disheartened, completely desolate in that I, there was no hope that I would ever figure out what was wrong with me, let alone overcome it. And then I was introduced to someone I explained my whole story to um, from start to finish um, suggested a book called Healing Back Pain by Dr. John Sarno. And she said, you know, um, this pain sounds really familiar to something that I've experienced with um, migraines and knee pain. And I read this book and it's actually about back pain primarily, although, you know, it talks about other ways that mind body symptoms can manifest in the body. And she suggested I read it. And so that was like my start into it was the first book I ever read um, that talked about, you know, the brain and emotions and trauma and how all of those things can manifest as physical symptoms. And so that was my intro into neuroscience, into the brain and the body and how it's all connected. Awesome. Uh, I am intrigued. I have a thousand questions, but the first one I want to ask is, did you ever have any kind of accident or any actual physical trauma that you could attribute to causing the back pain and where in your back was the pain located mostly? Yeah, absolutely. So there was, I had a a snow skiing injury actually, when I was, um, when I was a teenager, I had a snow skiing injury and, you know, I, I, I took a fall, some twists, some turns was extremely sore. Uh, and it healed, you know, after, after a couple of months, I did go to chiropractic for that and it healed. Um, and I didn't have any limitations after that. So, um, one of the things that I kept going back to was, and even, you know, the different doctors that I had, we kept going back to this, well, maybe it was a skiing injury. And so how they explained it was, you know, I had this injury and for some reason that they couldn't explain, my back had been degrading over time. Uh, and that was their explanation, the, the best explanation that they could come up for as to why I was in so much pain. Yeah, so it was that initial skiing injury. And one thing uh, that Dr. Sarno actually speaks on is something that's very common among people who experience TMS or tension, myoneural syndrome also synonymous with mind-body symptoms, is that usually there is some some sort of event that people go back to to explain, okay, it was it was this acute point in time that created this problem or symptom or experience. Hmm. And is that the actual place where the pain resided after the fact? It, it did, yes. Yeah, so it was my lower back. Um, my lower back and my SI joints, really low, very central. And it even extended into, um, and it, it progressed over time. So it started out as kind of a dull ache in my low back. And then eventually I got some nerve involvement where I would feel just extreme intense electric electrifying pain down my legs. And it was really centered in that, that one area. Huh. Okay. And what, what, how old were you when that happened? I mean, when, after the injury, you said you were a teenager and then you talked about, um, the pain being healed and everything felt like it was okay. And then how long after that did the pain really start to come back and not go away? Yeah. So, uh, the injury happened when I was 13 
And it wasn't until I was 18 when I really started to feel that pain again. Okay. And it was similar? It was. I mean, it was identical. Identical. But no other, no accident prior to that to all of a sudden bring it on. No. So this is where, this is now where the story begins. Exactly. And this your is your journey. So how long, when did you um, end up in a wheelchair? You, you mentioned being in a wheelchair. How long after you started feeling it did you? That took, that progression took about two years. That's all? That's it. Holy moly. It was rapid. I mean, so it was 20. I was, yes. Oh my goodness gracious. Which is, you know, part of the reason you, you know, you have to ask, you know, why is this 20 year old who's in good health, who, you know, has had no injuries, no accidents. Now, suddenly there's this unexplainable, intense, severe pain. Right. Right. That is the question to ask. That's literally the question. How, how, what's going on? How is this possible? And so now let's jump back a, a second here. Now we're, we'll talk about the mind-body part of things. And you read Dr. Sarno's book. What are some of the highlights or some of the insights or ahas that you, you started to uncover from that book or from the big, that, that experience forward? Sure. Um, so I have always been someone who, always been someone who had a difficult time feeling my emotions. I was very much disconnected from my feelings. I was very avoidant. Um, and I had a tendency to repress a lot of my emotions to the point where they would go completely unnoticed by my conscious mind. They would just, things would happen, events would happen, traumatic events would happen. And I would remain just completely even killed. Absolutely no, no distressed feelings whatsoever. And what happens is when those emotions, so emotions have a physiological component to them, mm -hmm. when those emotions are not processed and moved through from the beginning to the end, they manifest in the body as an outlet. Um, so I think for my case specifically, a lot of, of my emotional repression was coming out as these different physical symptoms because I wasn't processing, moving through and handling those emotions and regulating them and expressing them in ways that were healthy and adaptive. And so in an effort to discharge that underlying emotion, it was coming out as all of these different physical symptoms and as pain. So I'm going to, let me ask you this kind of, uh, odd question, a thought that I just had, and maybe you know the answer to this for your own experience. Did the pain show up in your lower back because that was already a place that had some damage to it? Or do you think, and maybe there's something else I'm missing, do you think that your subconscious was aware that you would link your back pain to a previous event and not look further into your emotions, therefore just suffer. Absolutely. You, the Definitely. second one, you think? The second one, yeah, for sure. So the body's always looking for what's, you know, what's going to be the, the, the most believable place I can put this pain. 
And, and Dr. Sarno speaks a lot about that and that, you know, typically the, the subconscious brain will pick a place, will pick the site of a previous injury because it makes sense, right? We can, and we're meaning makers. We're, you know, masterful meaning makers and we're always looking to make those connections. So oftentimes the subconscious brain will choose the location of a previous injury. Um, also common to pick something that say runs in the family, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily genetically based. However, you know, if your mother suffered from migraines, it's more likely that if your subconscious brain is, you know, trying to pick some place to put this, oftentimes it'll either pick the site of an old injury or um, something that runs in the family or that you've experienced with someone else. So then that begs the question, first question is is how, which we probably can't answer scientifically, I don't think. Um, But the other question is why? Why is the body creating space for physical pain when that's what it doesn't seem like to be the origin of it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, great question. Um, In my experience, the way that I've experienced my pain and the way that I've experienced my emotions is that all of these pain symptoms were keeping me distracted. They were keeping me away from the emotional side of things. They were keeping me away from these past traumas and current emotions and keeping my focus on pain on the body instead of being focused on the emotional in the emotional realm. Right. The distraction. So, so the word you use is distraction. That's what I wanted to focus on here. So our subconscious mind is distracting us from our emotional pain by creating pain in the physical three-dimensional world and our, which is, which is our body. Absolutely. Because we, because it has to go somewhere. There has to be, like the energy or the the emotion or the trauma isn't gone yet or dealt with. So it, that, it has to exist somewhere and where else to exist other than in our three dimensions, which is our, our physical space, which is so intriguing, a little frightening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so because, because you, what you mentioned at the very beginning is you went to all these specialists and they're all like, you don't have any idea what's wrong. There's really, you know, there's nothing wrong. Your actual body, you don't have a broken bone. You don't have a detached ligament. You don't have a, a disc that completely disintegrated and is now oozing everywhere. So that's so interesting to me that there's this, and I believe it. I mean, I have experiences in different ways of similar, similar things. Um, but my question for you now is, Clearly, I mean, I'm, I, I've seen you walking around. You're not in a wheelchair anymore. And it sounds, sounds like you have figured it out to at least a point where you're not debilitated. Was it a moment in your life that you were holding on to? Or is, is it possible that it can be an accumulation of smaller traumas that just kind of build up and, and just kind of house themselves in, for your, in your experience in your back? Uh, I, I think a little combination of both, actually. Um, it was defi- definitely an accumulation over time of just 
unprocessed, undealt with traumas, emotions, experiences, adverse life experiences that ultimately began to take a toll on my body in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and with my back pain specifically, it was connected to, to, I think it was accumulation, I think was the back pain because even, you know, throughout the years, I, I can point to times when, you know, I was extremely stressed for an exam that was coming up. I had terrible stomach pain, smaller things like that, that weren't necessarily chronic. Um, the back pain though was, was chronic and really required me to do big work to, to not just make the connection with how, how those things were manifesting in my body, but to make meaningful changes in my life to start living in a way that was more aligned and congruent with my authentic self and less outwardly focused on appearing a certain way and gaining the false approval from people who at that point in time, I felt like I needed it from. So with that, it was really about making those big changes that helped me through that process of overcoming those, those symptoms. So how did you, who did you work with? I mean, how did you, I mean, once you make a discovery, like you did that your mind might be playing a role in your pain and it could be attached to past experiences that you haven't dealt with that were traumatic. What's the next step for you? Was it like, Oh, bingo, I'm healed. Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite that linear. Uh, it was, it it definitely took time. I mean, it's still, it's still something that I am overcoming to this day. Um, so books, 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 books. <laughs> I read, um, I devoured books. Um, I would finish one and immediately start another one. So, um, a few notable ones that really, um, helped me along in my journey was definitely healing back pain by Dr. John Sarno. Um, the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk, um, was excellent. Uh, you know, how to do the work by Nicola Perra was a, was a huge piece of that as well for me. And then um, most notably, I would say, was um, curable. So curable is is a chronic pain program. And they actually developed an app. The app is free. It's got a ton of great resources that, you know, teach you about all of the different ways in which your brain and your mind can, can contribute to the pain you experience in your physical body. So they developed an app and I used the app, except I wanted more. I wanted, I wanted to dig into it more. I wanted to dig into the neuroscience of it more into, you know, turning that in, turning that into action, turning that into change. And so I signed up for their 12 week program, which was, um, it was a group of people who suffered from similar mind body symptoms. And we would meet once a week for 12 weeks. And during that week, we would have a lesson. And so the lessons ranged from, you know, learning about neural pathways and conditioning and how that can contribute to persistent symptoms and learning how to set boundaries and learning about, you know, foreboding joy and all of the things that get in the way of authenticity and vulnerability. Um, 
learning about the pain systems in the brain, the amygdala, and how that, you know, can become overactive over time and hyper aroused. So each week we had that lesson. And then together as a group, we would talk for an hour about the lesson and our facilitator would ask us leading questions to help us make connections and how all of that content resonated with us specifically. And then the second half of the two hour meeting, we would just chat as a group. So it was a lot of, you know, group therapy where you felt seen and heard and you didn't feel like this is just me. You know, what's wrong with me? Nobody can figure this out. Nobody can help me. So a part of it was building that community and finding that so many other people experience the same thing. So getting that connection and feeling a sense of community was, you know, hugely beneficial as well as the lessons. Is that one of the first times you've ever felt that in your life, having that sense of community and inclusion and being seen? Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, one of the big pieces for me that I have been working toward acquiring that sense of community because that was something that was, you know, definitely lacking for me. And primarily it was lacking because I was busy hustling for, you know, a false sense of external approval instead of finding true belonging and being who I was. I was being who everyone wanted or who, who, I thought everyone wanted me to be. So I didn't experience that community. I didn't have those deep, intimate, secure relationships, you know, during childhood. So that was one of the first times that I really felt safe, secure, and seen. Wow. Have you ever heard of Joe Dispenza? You know, I can't say say I have. So if you're still ravenous for books to read... Um, evolving your brain, the art of being supernatural. He talks a lot about how people heal themselves all the time. And he does workshops with people to help them heal themselves by changing the way they think about their lives and reprogramming their brain. So if you're, if you're interested in other books, those are the, I, his books are kind of like the ones I've used to gain my knowledge of all, how all this stuff works. And what I want to ask you what part uh, what part of the neuroscience that you were discovering or the science in general kind of just drew you in and you couldn't get enough of it? Is there any parts of it that you just are still so intrigued by? And are there any specific areas that you are trying to still learn more about? Uh, I mean, it's endless. So, right, right. <laughs> right, which is right up my alley because I, I you know, I always want more uh, information. So I'll yeah. definitely check that book out. Uh, thank you for the recommendation on that one. Uh, as far as sections of, you know, areas in neuroscience that really drew me in, um, I'd say we're, we're two, two main pieces of it, which, um, which are neural pathways mm-hmm. and, conditioning and how neural pathways are involved in that and how emotions can get, you know, connected to a pain symptom via neural pathway and how that can branch off into these just intricate, broad neural networks and how oftentimes, you know, at one end of that network is, is pain. And so, you know, for me, I had a lot of triggers which, you know, now I I can see a map in my head of a brain and all of these different neurons firing Um, in that, you know, that explains, you know, and and I'll give, give one example to that, which, which has always stuck with me is, 
you know, anytime I sat in, and it was very specific, you know, it was conditional. Anytime I sat in, you know, a hard chair for more than 20 minutes, I would experience pain. And so, so that, you know, being linked, right, right, you know, those, those two circumstances, when two things happen simultaneously enough time, your brain will wire a connection for both of them. So that eventually in the future, if those things happen enough times together, all it will take is for you to sit in the chair for that to fire off that, you know, neural pathway that will result in pain. Right. So I had a, just an intricate web being developed in my brain and being strengthened because I was practicing a lot of these things throughout the day, not, not intentionally and not consciously. Sure. Um, that's just what was happening in my brain. So neural pathways and how intricate they can be and, and what things can get linked together is, is so fascinating to me. And I think there's so much more to learn there that I would love to dive into more. Mm-hmm. And then the second piece of neuroscience that really caught me was, um, you know, the limbic system, the brain and how the amygdala, which is, you know, responsible for fight or flight and how that's connected to your memory via the hippocampus. And then how the thalamus is involved in there and and can secrete all of these, you know, neurochemicals to get you ready to fight, flight, freeze. And how pervasive that is, you know, in our modern world, when we're faced with, you know, threats or stress or danger on a daily basis um, because of how busy our world is and how that amygdala can get oversensitive over time and and start saying danger, 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 let's get ready to fight or flight. Even when there might not be, you know, a real threat to survival in that moment. Um, I can't even remember a time in my life. And I think most people can probably relate to this that I have actually been in a moment where my life was on the line. We don't live in a world. I, I shouldn't say that I don't live in a, in a place in the world where that is actually something that is concerning for me. And I recognize my privilege in that because I am a pretty good sized white man. Uh, there's not, I can pretty much go wherever and never entered my mind that I should be concerned or scared about anything. Not the same for some of my children, you know, that find themselves um, in places that are scary because they are either female or present as a female. So they can be, they feel scared sometimes. Uh, but for the most part, this fight or flight thing you're talking about isn't really life or death, but our bodies react like it is. And then we have to deal with the system that was created for us to protect in ourselves and survive. And so what I hear you kind of a thread that I hear going through this from beginning up until now <clears throat> is that this is this mechanism of our body creating pain is actually in some very odd way protecting us and what it's protecting us so this physical pain it's that we are experiencing is protecting us from the emotional pain that we are either unaware of or don't want to deal with. And that to me is how intricate, just to show how intricate the the neural networks you're talking about can be. 
<clears throat> and how pervasive they can be. Like how certain things, like you said, sitting in a in a wooden chair can trigger things that aren't actually associated with the wooden chair, but because the neural networks are so complicated and so um, uh, interwoven that it starts initiating responses to other neurons. And all, all of a sudden you've got this overreaction to something, whether it's emotional or physical, that doesn't really fit the time or the space that you're in. Does that make sense? Exactly. No, well said. It's very, it's very, that's, see, that's the part that I am very, I think about a lot. Um, and so can you, did, so when you started, you had the group, you started to, you said it was, the app's name was Curable? Curable, yes. Okay. I'll put that on the, on the notes when, when I send this out for people to, to get to if they are interested. Uh, and were you able to identify any, and you don't have to share them I mean, if you don't want to, but my question is, were you able, able to identify any specific emotional moments or traumas or that in your teen years, it sounds like, that could have attributed to this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love to just be open to talking about my my traumas and and you know the experiences that I had during childhood and how that contributed because I think it's important. I think it's important for us as a society, as a culture, to redefine what we constitute as trauma. Um, and so I think I think it is. You know, oftentimes we we think of trauma as a very acute, you know, like you mentioned, survival threat, life or death. Um, you know, and and I'll, I'll throw some some you know common and and they, you know like capital T trauma, right? Capital T traumas, big life events. Um, and I don't know if we want to give a trigger warning for some of the things I'm about to say for the for those that are listening. Um, just as far as, you know, capital T traumas go, you know, suicide in the family, um, you know, incarceration, being separated from your parents, you know, raped by a family member, incest, those things, capital T traumas that we normally think of. And I think, um, you know, and as traumatic as those things are, there's also those lowercase T traumas that are, um, you know, less acute. And a big one for me was never feeling a sense of true belonging. So I grew up in a, in a extremely conservative and Christian family and I was gay. And so that was a big piece of it for me was growing up in that environment where, you know, every Sunday, you know, I was going to a place that was, you know, labeling me as an abomination. you know, and having, you know, things like, you know, demon possession being involved in that was, was just extremely, you know, and, and for someone who didn't have those connections, I didn't have not one truly emotionally intimate connection and that I felt safe with one person. So I was very isolated in that. And I was fearful for my life and more so than fearful for my life. I was fearful for eternity. Um, and so to a kid without any safe space that is too overwhelming to be able to deal with on your own. So my brain, um, 
blocked it off and shut it down because it was too much. I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the tools, you know, to be able to handle those emotions, to work through them, to process them and regulate them. And so my brain result just relied on repression because it was easier to, you know, sleep, sleep through that period of time, literally and figuratively, Mm -hmm. um, then to handle those emotions. So that was a big piece of it for me was that ongoing, you know, fear. Am I going to get out of my house if they find out? Right. You know, what will happen? Will they send me away? So that, that constant fear and the, the constant um, alienation and not ever truly belonging and not feeling loved that, that deep sense of love. Yeah. So I want to just say that I don't think what you experienced is a small T trauma. I mean, that's an ongoing, as, as the uh, big T traumas you mentioned are, of course, we all would agree, horrible and life-threatening in some cases. Yours was a lifetime of it. And so that's a big deal. And I, I, I remember thinking similar things with my childhood that what am I complaining about? You know, look at all the people in the world that have gone through genocide and through um, living in places where they, if they leave their door, they're, they're, they're concerned they're going to get shot or are they going to have food or are they going to have heat in the winter? You know, things that are seem to be much more acute and much more in your face traumatic where everybody would be able to say, yes, we all agree that that's traumatic. So, and I wonder if you, if that was a part of your thinking, like, I have a place to live, I have food, I have access to different things. Did you ever think that, why am I, and maybe not because you were younger, but do you ever think like, I shouldn't be complaining because this isn't as big a deal as it, this isn't as bad as it is for other people. Other people have it so much worse. Was that ever something you thought about? It was, yeah. And in it. It definitely was a comparison played, you know, a huge part in that where I was thinking, no, it could be in it for me, a pervasive thought that I had was it could be worse. Yeah. You know, my physical needs were my physical needs were met. Yeah. You know, and, and not to ask, you know, not to expect and not to ask for anything more. Um, I remember having that thought a lot. So it could be worse. Don't ask. Right. So by saying it could be worse, we are diminishing and belittling our own suffering. And it took me till I was about 45 years old. So congratulations on doing it about half the time, just so you know. That's good for you to figure that out long before I ever did. And I and it was from a book um, called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Now, Viktor Frankl was one of the um, men that developed psychotherapy and he was a survivor from Auschwitz where he saw his entire family, wife, kids, everybody he knew slaughtered. He survived somehow. And in his book, it's a small little book. It takes about an hour and a half or two hours to read it. But in his book is where I found permission to honor my own trauma, even though it will never compare 
to what that man went through or all those people that survived or unfortunately didn't survive went through. I, that, I, I, I'll never know what that is. And that's the whole point. I'll never know. So for me to compare myself to that is doing myself and everybody in my life a disservice because then I'm not dealing with it, right? In his book, he said, pretend that each person's, I'm paraphrasing, pretend each person's suffering is like a gas, like a like helium or oxygen or whatever. He said, no matter how big the room is, it's going to fill the entire space. So. That was his analogy to your suffering is your suffering. You should honor it and then work yourself through it to the best of your ability because there's no way to compare yourself to this other person who lives in a completely different part of the world and a different culture and a different time in the in a different century or whatever. And it was very liberating for me to to and I wrote him a letter. He's even though he's dead, I I wrote a letter to him and it's just on my computer, just telling him, thank you, you know, for, for that person to be able to offer that space was quite a gift. And I think a lot of us, and this is a very roundabout way of going about this. A lot of us sit with our own pain and think it could be worse. So I'm not going to complain or ask for help because it doesn't make any sense. Who am I? Exactly. It's not enough. It's not enough. enough. You know, and I think it goes back to that. You know, you're not enough. This isn't, you know, valid enough, bad enough um, to warrant support, to warrant, you know, acknowledging it even, recognizing it and naming it, speaking it. Right. And the feeling that, like you just said, that we aren't worthy of getting the help that we need because if I went to the emergency room for this and somebody else was there and their hand was half, was in a chainsaw accident and it was half off, I'm waiting in line. I'm going to be waiting in line a very long time to get help because my problem isn't real. It's not good enough. It's not as bad as everybody else's. So I'm just going to suffer through it. And I think what I, what your message is, is that you don't have to suffer through it. And, um, I really appreciate you sharing what you shared because I think there are a lot of people that find themselves in a situation where just suck it up, you know, deal with it. It's going to be, it is what it is. And there are other people in worse shape. So why should I even bother? Right. Exactly. We have to give ourselves permission to, to feel and to acknowledge our experiences for what they are. Yes. And permission to feel there's another book. Cassidy actually introduced me to that book. Yes. Seems like an odd thing to say. I give give myself permission to feel, but it sounds like for you as well that I actually had to do that. And that's a very very difficult thing to do because that's one of the that opens up all the pain and all the all the old bullshit that we were trying to avoid. And now if I'm going to look at it and I'm going to do something with it, then I have to actually feel it. And that's right scary until you do it. And then you're like, what the hell was I waiting for? Exactly. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, and you know, in my brain at the time, I didn't have the skills, you know, to, to handle those emotions, to feel them in a healthy way. And so my brain relied on this pain outlet and now it's, you know, it's a matter of time and it's just 
practice and repetition and letting my brain know, Hey, you know, I know why you felt like you needed to do that to protect me then. Now I have acquired those skills. I can process and handle and manage those emotions in a healthy way. We don't have to rely on this old coping pattern, you know, this old coping mechanism. We're here right now. We're safe. We have the skills. We can do it. We don't need the pain. But when you say we, who are you referring to? So I'm referring to, I'm referring to myself, my, my conscious brain and my subconscious brain. So in that moment, I was, I was speaking, I was speaking as my conscious brain and um, speaking to my subconscious. Okay. Now, does your subconscious have a name? Do you have some sort of image? Do you, is it just, or is, are you at the point where it's just a conversation? It's just like, you know what you're doing and you're, and you're rewiring the programming in your brain. Did it start like that? Or did you have to start with some sort of tangible, not physical tangible, but mentally tangible um, space for to start those conversations? Yeah, actually a little bit of both. And that's really fun for me. So I speak a lot in terms of, you know, when I notice, you know, I'll, I'll speak a lot in terms and through, say, my amygdala, you know, and when I when I can tell I have a disproportionate reaction to something, I'll say, ah, my amygdala is, you know, hyperactive right now. So I speak a lot in these different parts of my brain. And then um, I haven't actually named my subconscious brain, which I think would be a fun exercise. Um, I've named my inner critic, Mm -hmm. uh, which was really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did name her uh, and I would love to name my subconscious brain. Hmm. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. See, I, the way I I look at it differently, although I think it, which is, great everybody should come up with their own way to to kind of um not just visualize but in, uh not even in, just intellectualize but perceive their subconscious parts of them and i refer to those parts of me as my multiple me's where i've i've gone back and and i've identified specific moments in my life that felt traumatic and then i've had conversations with those younger versions of myself very similar to what you did, where you said, I understand why you did what you did. And I appreciate you helping me and protecting me. But that was 36 years ago. I'm now this person that's not serving our ourselves in a way that's going to make us grow and be better. It's actually keeping us back. And so I need you to sit down. I need you to just let me take the steering wheel and let me put the, my foot on the gas and I'll dictate when we slow down, when we speed up. Let me know if you have any thoughts or questions, but you are not in control anymore. And that was hugely liberating for me. And I think relieved a lot of the physical symptoms of other you know, bodily issues I was having. And I think what happened was it released, I was spending so much energy dealing with those parts of myself that when I kind of set them free, I had all this new energy because it wasn't being used for anything anymore. And it was now flowing in different places and whether it created healing or a sense of euphoria, either both of those things were, were experienced by me in that instance. And just to know that our brain is doing all of that is very intriguing. And unnerving at the same time 
I mean, who's in charge of our brain? Have you ever thought about that? Like you say, I, we say, we, we say me, we're not our brain. We're not even our body. So what is it then that is guiding all of it? How about that for a question? That is one that, that <laughs> I couldn't even begin to try to answer. I know. And I think about stuff like that all the time. Yeah. And when I, when we look at even Dr. Joe Dispenza, or I'm sure Dr. Sarno and some people you were at, I've done some quantum, quantum theory kind of diving into. And when it gets right down to it, nobody knows what the hell's going on. Yeah. I mean, we can know enough to manage and to understand how our bodies and our mind are interacting. But we keep asking why we don't know. Yeah. The one thing I'll say on that is I think our brains are more complex than they are giving us the ability to comprehend. Correct. I would also agree to that. They're saying, no, I'm going to cut you off here. I can do all this up here. I won't let you be able to comprehend that level of complexity. Yep. There's a, one of the, uh, I have a a book called the human brain book by Rita Carter. And one of her quotes, the beginning of the book is it isn't, she says, it is entirely possible that our brains are too complicated to fully understand themselves. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's not only possible, that's prob that's probable. We will we we just don't we won't get it. But then there's people like these people you're reading and I've been reading to grab gather this information that have a little glimpse into how we can manipulate it and utilize it and change it so that we can suffer a little bit less and grow a little bit more and then have conversations like this and then try to share it with other people so that maybe they can get something out of it. It's crazy stuff. It's all around us always. Yes. Now, how long has it been since you've been out of your wheelchair? It has been, let's see, two years. Oh, really? only two years. So two you see, years. you're on the fast track. That's yeah. That's my, that's my MO. That's your MO. You, you find something, you dive right in. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, books, 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 books. Yeah. So that's your fast track. Now, do you see yourself? I know that you're in between jobs right now and stuff, but how, how do you, do you see yourself? It feels to me like this is just going to be something you're always going to be interested in and learning about and, and practicing and working on, but do you see yourself in this vein of choice for what you do with your life? As it is directed and focused on myself it is endlessly going to be a part of me um would that extend to others i would love to find a way that i could extend that passion extend even my personal experiences and my suffering so that maybe someone doesn't have to suffer as long as i did doesn't have to suffer you know pain in that way and and get to the point where they're in a wheelchair. If I can turn my suffering, my experiences and my, my growth and and extend that to other people and offer that to other people, I would love to find an outlet and a way to do that. Well, maybe this is a good start. It sounds like it. Yeah. Let me ask you to try to do this. Can you summarize I don't care how long your summary is. It doesn't really matter to me. But can you 
summarize for somebody listening that is in chronic pain what they could do what is what is something from your perspective your point of view what would you suggest having gone through this and come out on the other side working on it still like you said but not nearly in the same pain you were in what would you suggest to them I know belief, belief is such a huge piece of it. Mm-hmm. And it's surrender. It's it's surrender. Surrender and embrace. See, that's the, I think that's the piece of it that holds a lot of people back. Curable program, huge resource because it breaks it all down into manageable, feasible chunks uh so number one recommendation it's worth it and even at the time i was you know i was unemployed at that time i couldn't work i couldn't i couldn't do anything um i couldn't even sit to do an a work from home job you know sit up in a chair so i remember the cost of the group's program almost stopped me from doing it so I, i know a piece of it is believing that you are worth it that it is possible you are worth it and to lean fully into it, to surrender yourself to the idea that your brain is complex enough to do this. It's not your fault. You know, it's your brain's way of protecting you. It's, it's all of our brain's way of protecting us, right? Because mind body symptoms are all around us. We just have to start paying attention. You know, you have a stressful day at work, you come home, you have a headache, you have stomach pain. You know, if we start, if we start looking at those things and making those connections and believing that we are worthy of, that we're worthy of getting better. I think that was a big piece of it. So terrible groups worthy of, we're worthy of doing the work for ourselves and surrendering to the power and complexity of your brain. Wow. So just simple. No big deal. (laughs) Except the under the, the fundamental worthiness piece of it. Yeah, see, and that's where I think a lot of us get stuck because we have trouble embracing that aspect of us as a human. Very, very wise words from a from a young sage. Thank you for that. Are there any last uh hurrahs or cheers or you can do it that you'd like to throw out there before we sign off i would end it on the note that you're worthy we are all worthy of the work of growth of of love of true belonging connection we're worthy of that um, in a deep deep sense so i would like to end it on worthiness and thank Brene brown Yes. For everything that he taught me on that front, because it is invaluable. Yes. And send it off with worthiness. Yes. Thank you. And I think we have, this is going to be the first podcast where I'm going to have a very comprehensive and extensive list of books. And so that offline, I'll ask you to send me other ones that you know. I'll just put them all out there and categorize them in different ways because I... I think Brene Brown, Brene Brown's book was one of the first ones that helped me jump right into being vulnerable and and surrendering too. So there's a lot of good people out there doing a lot of great things. 
And we just need to remind ourselves, like you just did, Lauren, that we're worth doing the work. And not only will our lives get better, but the people around us that we care about and love will, will also become better. Such great insight from a young person. I wish that I had the resources and the awareness and the ability to discover those things about myself when I was younger. Um, obviously, my life if, would have been a lot different, just like all of ours would if things were different when we were younger. Good, bad, either way, doesn't matter. Um, and I'm grateful that the, that she, Lauren, has um, done this work so early on in her life. We need a lot of people out there to kind of uh, push the limits of what we think and know to be our reality or our truth or even more importantly, possibilities. So uh, if you're interested, take a look at some of those books. If you're in chronic pain, there are lots of resources out there. This is one of them. It worked for Lauren I've experienced similar things in my life with um, holding on to emotion and feelings and having body responses to that. So I hope you got something out of it. I hope you enjoyed it. And I would like to offer my support this week for my gut instinct, my intuition, for guardian angel, spirit, uh, higher self, whatever it is that kind of guides us that a lot of the times we just ignore and then after the fact think, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, my gut instinct has, from my young days, my father would say, well, what does your gut say? Follow your gut. I never really knew what that meant. Uh, in the last five or six years, I've been really following that feeling. And this past weekend when I was uh, cutting down trees, luckily I followed my gut instinct. And I think actually probably saved me from a pretty serious head injury. I kind of told the story in the Metastating uh, Facebook page, if you're a part of that. So uh, here's to our higher selves, our guts, and to our ability and awareness and choice to follow them. The joke of the week why don't oysters give to charity? Because they're shellfish. Have a good week.